Revis Z. Wortham's Red River Mysteries have been favourably compared to extraordinary talents like Harper Lee and Elmore Leonard, but he says the most important thing for him is to tell a good story. And with his books making Best Mass Market Paperback Awards two years running, Revis Z, if you're in the USA, or Revis Z, if you happen to be in Australasia, is certainly doing that well. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and on today's Binge Reading, Revis talks about his passion for preserving stories of small town mid-20th century Texas before that world is lost forever. We've got three copies of the latest Red River Mystery, Laying Bones, to give away to three lucky readers. Enter the draw to win Offer closes August 23. And a reminder, you can get exclusive bonus binge reading content by becoming a supporter on Patreon for as little as a cup of coffee a month. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now here's Revis. Hello there Revis and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to folks that, that have, have, have uh, read some of my work and, and to be able to discuss the, the, the location and the characters and, and the storylines that I, that I spin for people. Look, it's wonderful. Now, this Red River series, which is the one we're focusing on mainly today, it's popular fiction, but it's got a definite literary edge. And you've been compared to some of the paramount writers of your nation, people like Harper Lee and Elmore Leonard, you know, the critics rave, and yet it is popular fiction. That's a quite a tricky um, double stool to sit on. How did you manage that? And what do you think about being compared with Harper Lee? Oh, Lord. You know, when, when I first saw that in print, I was I was stunned. I had no earthly idea that anything I could do would be compared to the quality of what uh, Harper Lee produced back in those days. And I never really considered what I was doing, literary fiction. I was just telling a story. I just wanted to tell a story about the area where I grew up in, in uh, north of Paris, Texas, up on the Red River and, and about the people that, that raised me and the people that I knew. And so I, I wrote about them the best way I knew how. And I, I you know, I, truthfully, I probably learned from reading Harper Lee. Uh, I probably learned from Elmore Leonard. I probably learned from uh, James Lee Burke. You know, writers read. And I've been a voracious reader ever since I was in kindergarten. So I've absorbed uh, a lot of, of fine writing. And because of that, I think that had a lot to do with, with my style and what I produced in those. You know, I, and there was another character, uh, uh, another author by the name of Donald Westlake. I don't know if you've ever heard of him in, in New Zealand. Donald E. Westlake was a fine writer, crime writer, and, and funny and, and quirky. And I, a reviewer about two or three years ago, 
said that one of my novels, my third novel, reminded him so much of Donald E. Westlake's The Busybody and the Fugitive Pigeon. And, you know, when you're when you're mentioning in the same sentence as all of those fine writers, it's, it, it's very humbling. And, and But I try not to let anything get in the way. I don't like, like to let it get inside my head because all I want to do is tell a story and, and, and entertain people. That's lovely. And we will mention your second series, the Sunny Hawk series. You've got four books in that. It's another Texas story, Texas Ranger Patrolling the Borderlands. Now, that one, that series won Best Mass Market Paperback Novel for both 2019 and 2020. You remain faithful to the Texas setting, but you certainly know how to tell a good Texas story, don't you? What? Tell us a bit more about the Texas that you know. Well, I, yeah, I, I was born a fourth generation Texan. I was I was born into the, the state. This is my state. This is uh, these are the people that I grew up with. I love everything about Texas. We're we're so unique. Some people say, you know, they say we we stand alone, and we kind of feel like we do. Texas. Texas came into the union in a completely different way than, than the other states. And so we have a sense of pride that really impacts the things that we do and, and the things that we say and write. And so I, I want to tell, I, I'm, I'm telling stories about all of Texas, not just small parts. We spoke earlier about uh, how people think Texas is desert, like Monument Valley or John Wayne country, but it's not. It, it, te- Texas is varied. And so I wanted, I'd been writing the Red River series since 19, <clears throat> I mean, since 2011, starting with The Rock Hole, the fir- my first novel. And my agent, after about four or five, six books, she said, I want you to start writing something a little different. Would you consider writing thrillers and I told her I would try. And so I wanted to set it somewhere differently. So I wanted to be down in the rugged Big Bend country of Texas. It's, it's some of, it's some, it's country. It's still untouched in many ways. It's still rough. It's desert country and, and mountainous, still dangerous. Everything out there will either stick or sting or cut you one way or the other if you're out away from, from the towns. And so I wanted to, to bring all that to life with Sonny Hawk. And what better main major protagonist would could you come up with other than a, a Texas Ranger who is is a lot like the old Rangers of the 1800s, but at the same time he has his human quirks too. He's very impetuous. He will get himself into trouble in situations that if he would sit and think about it for a little while he wouldn't get into. But it, it gives us that sense of adventure and that sense that thriller sense. And when I turned that first book into them, Hawks Prey, my agent said, well, this is a thriller I've never, like I've never read before. She goes, this is a Western thriller. And so then all of a sudden I realized I'm writing contemporary Western thrillers on top of everything else. <laughs> and funnily enough, your Red River series, although it is set in the 1960s, is considered historic now, isn't it? Isn't that funny? Uh, yeah, that, that's, I grew up in that. I'm 67 years old. I grew up in, the, in that era that, that people are looking back saying, well, that, that's history from a long time ago, but it's still there. I still remember it very well. And, and I wanted to bring those people and our old fashioned way of thinking and talking into these novels to preserve it. Texas is changing as, as we speak. There's a huge influx of people moving into the state. And our small towns are not the same small towns I grew up with. And, and we're even losing our sense of language. I call it old-timey language 
that we talk about words or phrases that my grandparents used that are going to be gone someday. And so I, I include those in the novels also, as well as the way of life that, that I lived and they lived in the mid-60s. They weren't completely out of the Depression at that point. These folks, you know, they, they'd survived the, the Great Depression here in the States. They had uh, gone to war during World War II. Many, many men and women went over there. And then Korea claimed even more people. And I think it slowed down the growth in my region, in the Northeast Texas region, up until the 70s when it finally started to catch up. So I was caught. I, I wasn't, I guess I shouldn't say caught. I lived between two generations and it was a perfect time for me to see how the old folks lived and how I, I grew up. Of course, y'all call them the old folks. They were younger than I am now, but that's how I look at them. Sure, sure. The series, as you've mentioned, began with the rock hole in 2011. And at that stage, your hero, Ned Farker, or your central character, he is a hero as well. He's a farmer and a part-time sheriff who's dealing really with domestic disputes in moonshine. It's a very quiet little country area. And when he's faced with a murder, he pairs up with a famous um, black sheriff from a neighbouring county, John Washington. Now, it seems to me the year is 1964. Would that have really happened in Texas at that time, that a white and black sheriff would work together? Isn't that interesting that you say that? Because it would. Uh, let me correct you a little bit. Ned Parker is a constable. Uh, he's not a sheriff, oh, but sorry. that's okay. Yeah. And, and, and John Washington is a deputy sheriff in nearby Chisholm, Texas. But it happened, and I know it happened, and I know it could have happened because my granddad was Ned Parker. And I knew John Washington, whose real name was Leroy Sipes. And they worked together on, on a number of occasions on, on crimes that had occurred in, in, in that region, in that rural area. My granddad was a farmer, but constables at that time were elected uh, officials that were just an outreach of the sheriff's department in Paris, Texas, or what I call Chisholm today. And so he, my granddad worked for the sheriff's department. He took care of drunks. He settled family disputes, whatever. But he did it all on his own. But sometimes you can't do those things on your own. They're too dangerous or you need someone to go with you. And at that time, and as what you mentioned, that time there were, you know, there was some, there was division between the races. And so when my granddad would need to go to certain areas, he would call John Washington, whose charge was to take care of, as, as I heard Mr. Leroy Sipe say, his job was to take care of his people. That's who he dealt with. And he was as big as I make him out to be in the novels. He was a giant of a man. I, I tell everyone, think of uh, Green Mile and John Coffey in the Green Mile. Mr. Leroy was about that size. He was a huge man. And so I used them as the foundation, the basis of my characters. And I use a lot of what I saw. The rock hole happened in, in a huge, in, in a sense, not to the extent that the murderer was dealt with as I deal with him in, in, in the novel. I don't want to give any spoilers, but it, it's something that happened. It's a, it's a crime that my granddad investigated when I was 10 years old. And he, that went on for well over a year until it, it it just fell off of my radar as a child and I didn't think about it until I was grown and he was retired and we were sitting on the porch of his farmhouse watching his, his farm was situated so close to the Red River I could I could see the land where the land dipped down toward the river and I could see the lights of Oklahoma, a town in Oklahoma and he and I were sitting on his porch watching the cattle out in the pasture and I remembered all the events that happened and that I put in the rock hole and I asked him, hey, you know, did you ever catch this guy? 
And my granddad looked at me with these cold ice blue eyes that he had. And he looked away and looked back at me again. He said, well, son, sometimes some folks just need killing. And that's all he would tell me. And with that sentence, I thought, what really happened? You know, what happened up on that river and this rural area, which uh, was inhabited by men that had survived World War II, we said, the men that survived Korea and the, the men and women whose lives were impacted by someone who was a, what we know today as a budding serial killer. And so I just w- I couldn't wrap my head around what they could have done or were capable of doing. And so I took an idea and I I folded it into the manuscript and that became the rock hole. Yeah. Yeah. Now that leads me to think that you might use nubs of real things for a number of your books, because in Laying Bones, the latest one that we're talking about, number eight in the series, there's, there's a little technicality about some way some land has been um, left. The rivers change course and these illegal honky tonks are operating in a bit of a no man's land, which is beyond the jurisdiction of two different states uh, or counties. And you mentioned that I think was something that you that really happened, wasn't it? It did. And it's it's still happening today, not with the honky tonks and the the illegalities that came with it. But the Red River, even though there's a dam about, oh, I guess maybe 90 miles upstream, the Red River is a massive, massive river and it it floods easily. In fact, it just flooded this year. I've seen it flood dozens of times, more than a dozen times since I was a kid. And when it gets out of its banks, it does what it wants. It is is a truly powerful river. And on occasion, it will squirm and, and coil and change direction and move north or south, leaving bits of Oklahoma or Texas on the wrong side of the river. If you look at a map and, and study it, you will see that there's a line. Technically, there's a line that goes down through the middle of the river. And supposedly, now Oklahoma's north, Texas is south. And never the twain shall meet. But when when the river moves and changes course, it can go as far as half mile or a mile north or south, leaving a split of land down in there. And the landowners just have to deal with it. If, if that's your if that's your land and you're in Texas and it and it comes south, you may have you may have the half mile that you own in Oklahoma. Now you're still responsible for it, but the, you know it's it's not in your state. And so there have been a few times when there's some been dis- there have been disputes over who owned a certain piece of land and, and whose it was. And, and when I was, was thinking about writing Laying Bones, uh, I kind of had an idea in my mind. I'd, I'd heard the river had moved in a couple of places. So I, I, I went to satellite maps on, on Google and I looked down and I found some pieces of land that belonged to Oklahoma, but they were in Texas. And then I thought, well, you know, like all writers do, we think, what if? What if the, someone on the Texas side owned that land but didn't want, want anyone, didn't care about it at all? And what if he just turned a blind eye and uh, received a pocket full of cash while people built a, a, a gambling honky-tonk on that land that truly there's no road to? Oklahoma can't get it to to oversee it. Texas can, but it, they're dirt roads, and then you have to go through pastures and fences. And Texas says, well, you know, that's not ours. Oklahoma says that's not ours. And the bad guys build this this gambling den, selling selling alcohol. And, and, and I don't know what you guys know about Texas honky-tonks. Back then, uh, they were rough. 
there were there were places with sawdust on the floor to to soak up the blood is what my granddad told me it was for, and I I knew about it because I had an uncle that owned one, and so I would go sneak in on occasion or go in over there when I was a kid, and I wanted to to fold those experiences into the manuscript that eventually became Laying Bones. Great, great. And I noticed that the Sunny Hawk series it reached four books, but you've said that's the last Sunny Hawk that's going to be, and I wondered. What is the difference for you in a series that feels like it's come to a natural conclusion and one like Red River that seems to roll on and on like, you know, the old Mississippi? Um. <laughs> the Sunny Hawk books have ended for right now. Uh, I don't know if they came to a natural conclusion, but the, that contract is over. There will be more. Sunny Hawk is not dead. He's going to come back in about a year and a short story. So it, we, I've already sold that one. So he's going to be around. But, uh, you know, you never know when you start a series. I, I didn't even consider writing series uh, when I wrote my first novel. It, I, I intended to sell it as a standalone and uh, Poison Pen Press at the time said, well, we like this and we like the character so much. We want to give you a contract for a series. And so that's how I launched on doing that. And that's an open-ended con contract. We've talked several times over it. I don't have, I'm not required to write one per year or anything else. That's what I'm doing, but I write the novels and turn them in. And I see those characters continuing on probably into the seventies, but I made a little mistake when I first started because I was, I was green as grass. I didn't know anything about writing. Uh, and so every, after I wrote the, the rock hole and I came back to write the second novel, which is Burroughs and people either love Burroughs or they hate it. It's one of the most claustrophobic novels, horror novels you've ever read that wrapped up into the Red River series, but I dated Burroughs one year after the rock hole. Well, I lost that entire year that those experiences that the children in the, in, in the rock hole could have experienced. And then the third novel, the right side of wrong was another year after that. And so what I, what I'm finding out was I was writing myself out of the entire series way faster than I wanted to. And so I, as I got into the later books, Laying Bones and Goldust, and, and I go, look, uh, Langmo's Goldust and Unraveled, I've been compressing the time now. So they're, they're taking place within months, if not weeks of each other, rather than going on. Because, you know, the 70s were a completely different decade. I remember bits and pieces of the 70s. There was a lot going on for a young man back in those days. And I realized that I might lose the flavor and the kids are going to get too old too quickly. Because of that, I, I've compressed the time. I'll probably continue to compress it. It may go to the 70s, mid-70s, before it, it, it runs to a natural conclusion. I don't know. But what I've done also is I, is I, I created a character in the third book, The Right Side of Wrong, named Tom Bell, an, an older, retired Texas Ranger. And he moves into Center Springs and meets the kids in the rock hole and meets Ned and Miss Becky and John Washington and becomes a fixture for that novel. Well, at the end of the novel, I thought that character had run his course. And so I left him dying uh, after a gunfight in Mexico and continued on with, with the right side of wrong. And then I came back and I wrote Vengeance is Mine. And every time I would go to a signing or a talk, people would say, well, why did you kill Tom Bell off? He was one of our favorite characters. And I realized I'd made a dramatic mistake by getting rid of him. So I went back and reread the end of the novel. And, and when I did, I realized, well, I didn't kill Tom Bell. All I did was left him seriously wounded. And so I resurrected him for the next novel. And he has been with us ever since. But the, the great thing is, 
Not too long ago, I wrote and turned in my newest novel, which is going to come out in February of next year. And it's called The Texas Job. And it is Tom Bell is a young Texas Ranger. It's, it's a prequel in 1931 East Texas during the oil boom of that time, which was just it, it, it was a snapshot of history. It was rough. It was violent, but it was the growth of the industrial, the oil industry and the gas industry. And I set that novel there. And so now we can see Tom Bell as a young man. So instead of pushing on into the 70s with everyone else right now, I'm kind of looking back at where we all came from. That's fantastic. Look, Revis is an unusual name and I wouldn't comment on it except that on your website, you've mentioned that there's four authors who've all taken up that name and given it in slightly different forms in the books that they've written. So it it sort of makes sense to ask you a bit about those writers and also where the name came from. Well, yeah, it, it's a un, very unusual name that, that I don't run across very often. And if I do, it's usually pronounced differently. My mom pronounced it Revis, which rhymes with a crevice. And so, you know, that's the best way to describe it. But it's a unique enough name that people notice it, especially my middle name, Zane, because I was named after Zane Gray. And so the two of those will capture people's attentions. Now, the guys that have put me in their novels I have done so partially because we're friends. We know each other. We're, we're very good friends, but partially because of the, the unique name itself. And so, and thanks for them just mentioning, it's just a brief mention in some of them, but, and thanks for doing that or, or a brief character and thanks for doing that, doing one of the most unpardonable sins that I've heard that I could do. I'm leading people away from my website by linking their books on my site. But I, just, I think it's fun. I'm, I'm not in competition with anyone. I want I want everyone to, to discover our books. And so CJ Box is one of them. John Gilstrap is one that, that have done that. And if you just read their names uh, on there, if you haven't discovered those guys like that, I think, did Craig Johnson do one? I can't recall offhand right now. But if those guys did that for me and, and mentioned it, then I wanted to, to pay them back somewhere and maybe gain a few fans for them. Because of that, then I, I've lived people away from my website, but I do want them to come back and, and look at it because we have a lot of fun there. There's a lot of information, photos and, and comments and, and old timey words that we talked about earlier, the language that uh, we're losing in the rural communities. And that's all listed on the website. It's fantastic. Look, moving a little away from the specific books to talking about your life as a writer, how did you become a full-time writer and what did you do before you started The Rock Hole? What, what was your, your job or your, your journey there? Well, I, I always wanted to write, wanted to write from the time I was a kid, um, tried for years and years. I, when I was in uh, elementary and junior high, I was submitting to Reader's Digest, doing my best. You know, uh, a friend of mine, uh, I won't go into the whole long story because it's fun. It's funny, but it's a very long story. A friend of mine introduced me to Playboy magazine when I was uh, in junior high. And I'd never I'd seen that on the racks, but I'd never opened one. Though God knows I wanted to. But he had his dad had one. And, and my friend said, Said, you know, they pay $2,000 for an article in, in Playboy magazine. And this was in 1968 or 69. And when he told me that, we looked and I found on the masthead where to mail it, mail in submissions. And I began a two-year correspondence with Playboy magazine trying to get them to, to publish my little short stories, which were atrocious, I'm sure. But I gave it my best shot. And finally, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from anyone was one of the editors at the at Playboy magazine, wrote me a personal note, said, you know, we're, we, your 
submission does not meet our needs at this time. Thank you for submitting this material, which was the mimeographed part. And then the second part was a note that he jotted down. And he said, you need to learn how to type, kid. And so with that, I took typing in high school and tried even harder and harder. Didn't get anywhere until 1988. I was a, I was a, an administrator in the Garland Independent School District at the time. Uh, and that's where I, I retired from after 35 years in public education. Uh, I retired as the director of communications and crisis manager for the Garland ISD. But I was in one of those meetings we've all been in, if you've ever been in the business world, that you don't really need to be there because they're talking about something that does not impact you. But by God, you're going to have your butt in the seat so I can look at you and make sure you're earning your. And I, I, I penned a quick newspaper column because I had been reading a number of authors and I'd been still been trying to write. Well, I'd been reading the aforementioned Donald Westlake. I'd also been reading uh, a novel by a guy named Robert Rourke, who is uh, is one of my I never met him. He died in '64, but he is he has been one of my mentors through his writing. And I was reading one by one of the funniest writers that you you've ever read. He wrote outdoor humor, Patrick McManus. And with I was reading those three, and they clicked in the back of my mind as one writer, and that's where I found my voice. And so I wrote a newspaper column. Sent it to the Paris News, which is where my grandparents were, where my family is from. And they picked me up based on that one newspaper column as their outdoor humor columnist for the Paris News. I'm still writing for them 33 years later. And I, I expanded that out into a self-syndicated newspaper column. I was I was in more than 50 newspapers just doing it on my own. When I got a phone call from King Feature Syndicate here in the States, they were going to make me the outdoor Dave Barry is what they said. I was going to be the that columnist. And all that collapsed because of the Internet and then newspapers began to fall by the wayside. So I had to find something else to do. Wound up writing magazine articles. Now, to date, I have about 2000 magazine newspaper columns with my byline on them, but still wasn't getting where I wanted. I love that kind of writing, but I wanted to write a novel. And so one day I came home from work, sat down, couldn't think of a thing to write. I, I try. I, I've never had writer's block, but I had a deadline for the newspaper article. Couldn't think of anything. And I looked over at uh, shelves in my other house, similar to these, and I saw my grandmother's pictures sitting there. And my grandmother always said uh, one thing. She, she said, I would always tell me I'm from up on the river, which meaning the Red River. I'm from up on the river. And one of these days I'll die up here on this old river. And she did when she was in the late 80s. But when I remembered those lines, I typed them down on my computer and I liked them so much that they led to the story, which became the first chapter for the rock hole. And I, I pounded that novel out over a period of two, three years, learning how to write. Uh, it was 140,000 words when I was finished with the first draft, 140. Now, anyone that knows, yeah, it, it, I, I can see you're, you're stunned. Uh, it was twice the length of a, of a typical novel, but I had a good editor. She taught me what to cut out. I cut out 50,000 words out of that manuscript. And then The Rock Hole was published right after that in 2011. At the same time, I retired after 35 years of public education. So I moved from one career directly into this one, and I'm just having a ball doing it. It's great fun. That's lovely. And so all of that time that you were doing the magazine articles and things, you also had a full-time job. I did. I was a public information officer for the school district, a photographer for the school district. And at the same time, as I was a crisis manager. So if anything happened 
I, I was the guy that dealt with the media and the police department and the fire department. And there was a lot going on and still is in, in huge suburban school districts. We had uh, 56,000 kids and 7,500 employees. So, it, you know, something's always going on. And just for example, I was I was on the forefront of of dealing with uh, all of these people's safety uh, when 9-11 occurred in, in 2001. Um, that's a job that, that I, that, that's the kind of job I did. I, I, we shut the schools down. We worked with the police department to maintain the security of everyone. We were in touch with every other school district in the area and many of them around the nation. And so we would work together to get to correct information to parents, to alleviate their fears, to come get their children if they wanted to, and to just to ma- maintain the safety of, of our students and staff. So those are, you know, I, I would do that during the day or deal with the media when, the, when something happened or be on camera. And so in the evenings, I needed to unwind. And the best way to unwind was to write fiction. And that's where that's where I, I learned to do it. And that's that I'm still unwinding today. I, I still love to sit and write and, and make up stories and, and follow these characters as they go through their lives and on, on the page. And people are, I've had more than one person tell me that the characters be, have become family to them. They look forward to the next book so that they can see what's happened within the past year. It's kind of like a family reunion. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Look, a perennial question that I always like to ask is, if there was one thing you did that helped you become a success as a writer, what was it? Wow, the one thing that helped me become a success as a writer. The, it's a combination of things, but the one thing that made me become a success is I read a, a small book by a huge writer, and the writer's name is Stephen King. And oh. he, wrote, he wrote a book called On Writing, yes. his journey to writing and how he wrote. And I had been struggling for decades not knowing what I was doing. And I read his book and at the back of the book, he had an example of pages that he'd written and was editing. And I realized then that Stephen King edited like anyone else. He put it down and then he come back, came back and cleaned it up. Not long after that, another very well-known author published a similar book, but it was different in so many ways that it stood alone. And it was called Lessons from a Lifetime of Writing by a gentleman who is now a friend of mine named David Morell. And if you don't recognize his name, you will recognize the character he created back in 1972. And that character was Rambo. And so I read David's book on writing. And those two books helped me more than anything. I saw truly how writers write. And after I put those two books on the shelf, and I still refer to them on occasion, but after I put them on the shelf, I sat down and really started on doing, do, writing the manuscript. But the, the, the other, as I said, there's, there's several things involved. The other thing is to put your rear in a chair and actually write. People talk about writing. A lot of people come to me, I'm going to write, I'm going to write someday. I'm going to write someday. Uh, when I retire, I'm going to be an author. When my kids are growing, I'm going to be an author. And, and the truth of the matter is, you're talking about it. You're not writing. If you really want to be a writer, put your rear in a chair, open a laptop up, put put Facebook and Twitter and Instagram down and write. And that's yeah. what I and that's what I do every day. Yeah. Look, you've mentioned already a lot of your favorite authors. So probably there's not a lot to add, but we do call this the joys of binge reading. So maybe if you could just give us an idea of what you really like and enjoy at the moment. 
Oh, I, I, you know, I, I'm across the board. I love reading biographies. I love reading history. I will find biographies in history and just absorb them. I have authors that I know that I, I love. I have authors that I don't know that I love. Stephen King, I'm a collector of Stephen King's works. I love his stuff. I have all first editions on my shelf that he's produced other than his first one, Carrie. And that's because there were only 2,500 of those that came out. But Stephen King has been a huge influence. David Morell, as I said, David's a good friend, but I read his books as soon as they hit the stands. My best friend, one of my best friends in the world. I just love this guy. He's a writer. I met in 2011 when I went to my first writer's conference trying to learn the business. He was walking past me. He walked past three times and he stopped. He looked at me and he said, you realize you're just sitting in front of an empty bar right now. It's closed. And I said, yeah, because we were in a hotel. And I said, yeah, but it's going to open. And when it opens, I'm going to have a gin and tonic. And he said, I'll be back. And he sat down next to me and we became fast friends. We're brothers from another mother. And his name is John Gilstrap. And John lives in Alexandria, Virginia. I'm in Texas. But we are we're what we call running buddies down here. Anytime we can get together, we're doing things. Our families, we've gotten so close, we, we vacation together. And John writes the Jonathan Graves series, which is absolutely fantastic. But he started another series now, a, a post-apocalyptic series that's going great guns. His newest novel is Stealth Attack. It's out, and, and I'm reading it. Oh, have, oh, there's so many great writers that are friends of mine. Uh, Sandra Brannon. Who is who lives in South Dakota? Sandra is a wonderful author. I wish she would devote more time to her writing because she is she's coming. She comes from a mining family, and so she runs a mining company. She knows more about explosives than you would believe, and she's also helping sitting on the board up there with the, the Crazy Horse Monument that's being constructed right next to uh, you know uh, uh, Mount Rushmore. So Sandra's a great writer. Good friend Jeffrey Deaver writes good stuff. C.J. Box. C.J. has helped me a lot. He, he promotes me. Craig Johnson, who, who writes the Longmire series. Craig, he, he helps promote me. I have a very, very close friend in East Texas, Joe R. Lansdale. Joe's he's, he's East Texas writer. He wrote a, a, a novel entitled Cold in July that they filmed a few years ago. One of the best novels about Texas I've ever seen. And Joe is all over the page. He'll write, he writes whatever he feels like writing. You might be reading about uh, a drive-in theater that's that's uh, suddenly sucked out of this universe and slammed down into the prehistoric era surrounded by dinosaurs or you're right he's writing about 19 depression area east texas and uh, everything he writes just is is wonderful the, the listeners can't see it but i wish they could because i'm going to give you an example of what my library looks like these are the people i read and it goes up to a, to a 14 foot ceiling these shelves and they wrap around this entire office I read all the time. You know, just, I, I gave you just a few that come to mind right now, but I, I hope it doesn't lessen my friends that might hear this that I didn't mention their name because I read lots of people. And I, I read people that are no longer with us. I just, I, I like older books. Uh, Ross McDonald, uh, Donald Westlake, uh, uh, Robert B. Parker. There are so many out there that, that I learn from as I'm reading. You know, Ray, uh, you and I were talking before we, we came on, writers write, but writers read. And you have to read because that's what that's what stimulates the brain and helps you become a better writer. And so I, I, I read voraciously. It's fantastic, Rev. So what is next for you as a writer? What are you working on over the next 12 months? What can we expect to see? I just signed a new contract for an entirely new series featuring a character named Tucker Snow. 
here in Texas, based in Texas, of course. That's all I'm going to write about, Texas. But uh, Tucker Snow is a stock agent. And here in the States, stock agents or stock inspectors, they go by both names, are part of the Texas, uh, just a part of the Texas Rangers. And they deal with uh, ranch and farm crimes. And so they make sure cattle are, have, you know, if someone has their cattle stolen, stock inspector. If your tractor is stolen, stock inspector. If your ranch house is broken in, you call the stock inspector. And so uh, we're going to follow Tucker Snow for at least two two to three books, we hope. Well, I, I got a two-book contract, but I think it's going to stretch out. And we're going to see uh, Tucker do a couple of things. He's going to he's going to preserve the the safety of the people in his region, which stretches in, from Texas into Oklahoma. He has the authority to go into Oklahoma to, to investigate and make arrests. But we're also going to see his family that has been devastated through meth. His wife and daughter were killed by someone that was on meth. And so um, as I've been investigating this and talking to these people, I'm learning that the meth problem is huge in certain areas of the state. And so Tucker is going to be dealing with that in addition to dealing with the rural crimes that he also deals with. As I said, I've got a no- I have a novel coming out called uh, The Texas Job. It, it releases in February. And so that one's coming out in February. The first Tucker Snow will come out the next year in 20, what, 23, 20, late 23, early 24. And then the one after that comes out in 25. And that's in addition to the others that I'm working on. I have written a, a horror Western that uh, is is humor. It's full of humor. It's someone call it Western science fiction, Western science fiction humor. It's it's quirky. It's funny. So I'm hoping to get that placed here at at some point. But I'm also working on two or three other manuscripts as we speak. I I have several under construction and just as like as the same as I have several books I'm reading at any one time. So I, there's a lot going on in my house, plus chasing grandkids around here and, and, and being a grandpa. So you write several books at, at one time. You can work, move from one to the other. I do. And I, I tell people, they say, how can you do that? Because, you know, they think you have to just concentrate on one and you might lose your place. But I tell everyone, you have your favorite TV programs. You know, you pick them up from week to week. You know what's happening. You know the characters. That's what happens with me. I will work on several at one time until one gets hold of me and takes the reins. And then I finish that one before I go back to the others. The one, the Tucker Snow that I'm working on, it's not due until March 23rd, but I plan to have it done within the next month or so, maybe a month and a half. And I reached the midway part yesterday, 40,000 words. So now I'm on the downhill slide for that one. And when I hit that point on my novels, they write themselves and they write fast because now you're, you're heading for the climax, and which is what we all want to, we all want to read. So you, you get, you read the end of the first uh, third of the novel gets established as your characters. The second sets the stage. And then the third, the third act is the climax. I'm getting to that part right now. And that's a lot of fun for me. I really do that. So that one's gotten a hold of me. That's what I'm going to work on until I get it uh, in the can, send it to my agent, and then I will go back to the other manuscripts I'm looking at and see which one I pick up. That's fantastic. Look, we have run out of time together, so just tell me, do you enjoy hearing from your readers and do you sort of talk to them online? I do. I love hearing from readers. If anyone wants to send me uh, an email, they can send it through me through my webpage, uh, com. Uh, or revisworthum.com, either one. I own both domains. Uh, you can link over and send me an email. Love talking to people about my books, the writing process. Uh, at the same time, I have two Facebook pages. One is more of a personal page, but that's the one that we have a lot of fun on. Uh, I have almost 5,000 followers on that page. And so it gets most of the activity, but I also have an author's page 
uh, that, that I post on at the same time. So people can reach out to me through them and through Messenger. And, and I, I, I travel the state uh, as COVID is releasing its hold on us. I hope to be again traveling the country, going out to, to talk to folks. I make presentations all the time. I attend writers' conferences uh, to, to be on panels, to meet other writers and to meet fans too. And if I'm ever out uh, at these conferences, I love for fans to come sit down and talk to me because I want to see what I'm doing that's impacting them. Whatever, it is. why do they write? Why do they like uh, Ned Parker and the Red River books? Why do they like Sonny Hawk and the Texas, you know, the Texas Ranger books? What did they like or dislike? I, I'm I'm thick skinned. I I'd love to find out why people get irritated at me. I have a character in my Red River books called named Pepper. And you, when you first start reading her in the rock hole, she's 10 years old. She's precocious. She's mouthy. She's, she's foul mouth. And she's, you know, she's just a character that, that really spices things up. And she plays off of Top Parker, who's a nice, quiet little, little kid. And he's also 10 years old. They're, they're almost near twin cousins. And so Pepper has, has developed a following as has, has uh, uh, Top. But I got an email from a lady one time that said, I love your series. I love your characters. And she listed those she especially liked. But she said, one thing is, I cannot wait until the day you drown Pepper in the Red River. I'm just tired of her. And I just thought that was funny. But, but, I, but see, I'm striking a chord somewhere with someone. I'm, I'm striking a nerve. And that's what I want to do. I want to entertain. And I think that's what these books do. That's wonderful, Rev. And I'm, I can certainly understand and, and see that you do definitely entertain that's fantastic thank you so much for your time well it's been a pleasure jenny thanks for reaching out i'm, I'm excited that, that folks down in your part of the world have discovered my books i get a lot of emails from australia people that found discovered the novels down there and i always look look forward to talking to all y'all in in, uh, in australia new zealand and, and anywhere in the world so just reach out to me and i'll talk but i appreciate it if people will read my books because that's what i want to do i want to entertain you that's fantastic Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. 
That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.